Coming up this hour, what continues to be the church's responsibility and opportunity in Afghanistan? And then we're joined by co-authors of Effective Intercultural Evangelism, Jay Moon and Bud Simon. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. We keep watching what's going on in Afghanistan. It appears now kind of just the big push for the United States is like, let's get our people out, right? Like, it's, yeah. that's the goal. Let's get our people out. The Taliban has kind of set an August 31st deadline. Uh, you never know what meetings are going on behind the scenes. But as you watch what's going on, uh, not so much interested, Aubrey, about what the our country's role is, because in the end, uh, it, I think we've decided what we're going to do here. But what continues to be our role as the church uh, when we think about what's going on in Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, I think the devastating part to me is I understand the need to get our people out as soon as possible. I affirm that. But I, then I also think what then you just leave this country to yeah. be under like martial law and be completely, you know, destroyed by this horrifying group of, uh, you know, leaders. And so I am, I feel a sense of dismay in my own heart that I I know like America isn't the only answer, but I do know that if we just evacuate everyone who is uh, not for the Taliban, then the Taliban is going to take over and we're only going to see dire results. And so I, I think our, you know, from afar, obviously our role is to continue to pray, but I also think like we can, we can partner with World Relief. We can partner with other organizations that are doing what they can on the ground, what they're doing to help some of the uh, refugees coming to the states. And then I, I do think there has to be some solution about the ongoing work in Afghanistan so that the Taliban doesn't completely take over. Right. I, I right. don't have the answers for that, Brian. I wish I did, but I certainly don't feel like we just get out and then we we wipe our hands. Like there's a lot. There's a lot of work to do. What do you think? You're right. It feels so ultra complicated right now as a nation, right? Because you can make the argument, how many countries are we then supposed to be in and making sure yeah, right. bad things don't happen? Right. But I do think as the church, I think we got to keep relying on, like you said, people like Matt Sorens and World Re- uh, World Relief. We got to keep uh, these people who kind of have a grasp for what's going on. And, uh, you know, sometimes as Christians, we say this flippantly, and I don't mean this flippantly at all. This can't be just a one week prayer thing that you do in your church. Like, oh, yeah, the Afghanistan was a big story. Let's pray today and then kind of move on. Uh, we need to be continuing to pray and to look for opportunities to support in any way that we can. And so that continues to be an unfolding um, humanitarian crisis. Mm-hmm. And just I, we'll see. We will see where this leads uh, as we go. Okay, Albert, I want to ask you, I, I, just, uh, I was on Twitter the other day. And there was an interesting thing that happens on Twitter with pastors. And all of a sudden I had this epiphany, like, I don't know what to make of this. And you know what? The beauty of a radio show is then I can go, so I'm going to ask Aubrey. (laughs) (laughs) Great. I'll put Aubrey on the spot see what she thinks. I probably do have an opinion if it's about pastors. So we'll see. And as I told you, I said, I have a church leadership question for you. And I'm not going to tell you until we're on the air. Like, I like doing it that way. So here we go. On Twitter, you will find pastors all the time saying things like this. I had this pastor. I, I most look up to this one pastor, this old pastor who pastored the same church for 30 years, never had a speaking gig, never had a book, uh, but just faithfully had 50 members, right? And then the, someone else will be like, yeah, you know, you know what I mean? Like there is this um, 
this adulation for kind of like the everyday small mm-hmm. church pastor right. that needs to be held up. And yet I've never met a pastor uh, who aspires for that. <laughs> and that's what struck me as odd. The other day I was reading these and it was some big pastors like, you know, who I respect the most. And they were talking about their childhood pastor or this guy in their town. And it's always said with like this romanticism. Mm. And so, Aubrey, there's my question for you. If all those people and it was all this happens on Twitter, pastor Twitter all the time. Yeah. If that is if they're being honest about having great respect for these men or women who just kind of labor with a congregation of a hundred and day in and day out, love their people, visit the hospital, preach sermons, uh, shepherd and do a, and then, you know, for 40 years, why do you, why do you and I, maybe you do know people, but why would I not know any pastors who are actually trying to, uh, actually make that a career and aspire for that? Like aspire to be almost smaller, right? Correct. Or as- aspire to be sort of unknown and it, it, just living faithfully in their corner and not the have a platform and not have yeah. a voice except in their spot. And it, the, the question sounds somewhat cynical and funny, but I, I it, literally the other day, mm. like I saw so many mm. of them that I was like, if we really did believe what these guys are tweeting, why aren't we why aren't we aspiring for this? Why you know is everybody trying for bigger and bigger platforms? Well, you know it's funny. It's probably the people there's probably a lot of folks out there that are trying for that. They're not on Twitter talking about it. You know what I'm saying? Cuz <laughs> yeah. they get it. They're like, I don't need the world to know I'm doing this. I'm just going to faithfully serve Jesus. God sees me. So I think they're probably just not on Twitter. I uh there's a there's a book called Big Magic by Liz Gilbert. She's a author and she writes for writers in Big Magic. And one of the things that she talks about, I actually tell this story in my book as well, but there was a really famous poet in the I, I want to say the 50s, I might be wrong about that, named Jack Gilbert. He was on the cover of magazines, he was getting awards, like a lot of like quote unquote celebrity for a poet, which sounds a little funny. He intentionally decided to stop writing. Mm. to stop to get out of the spotlight to just absolutely stop any form of celebrity because he was finding that it was getting in the way of his own creativity like like for him creativity and celebrity did not go hand in hand and um you know not not a christian guy at all and i think eventually he did go back to maybe being a professor and then doing some more writing but like um just not in front not on a like pulp Uh, pop culture stage. But that story to me is really interesting because I do wonder, can our worship and our service ever line up with a pursuit of like being famous or being celebs or being known or what have you? And this is actually a question I explore in my book, Known. And, you know, I'm not trying to like promote the book, although promote Promote away by Known. Um, I think it is a really, really, I think this is a question of our generation right now. Are we trying to fill our stadiums or are we trying to feed God's sheep? And I don't think, but I don't think often both can happen at the same time. Now, sometimes God does seem to have certain people that are set aside for that, but that is not the majority of Christian leaders in any way, shape or form, nor should it be. That's not, I mean, the call of Jesus is to come and die, not Mm. to come and make a name for yourself, right? The call of Jesus is come and and make his name great, not our name great. So I, I think it's a, we don't have the right answers. It's a question we need to be asking this generation and ourselves, especially. Yeah. 
you know, you and I talk about Mark Driscoll, that podcast all the time, mm-hmm. or all these different things we read about the danger of Christian celebrity. And I see like this long, again, Chris, Twitter may not be the best place to be figuring these things out, but you do see these people in books and on tweets kind of like romanticizing the small church pastor. Um, you read these studies that, that, that the most effective use of a pastor's time is a hundred people, like all of these things you yeah, see. Yeah. And yet I've never sat down with a pastor who goes, you know what I want to be? I want to be exactly what we are right now. <laughs> <I just> wanna, <laughs> no, it's exactly right. I I'm very content. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing wrong with big. There's no, there, there is actually no greater virtue in small, I don't think, but it just struck me reading these tweets and then these retweets and other people sharing going, well, then why don't we try for this? Like, why isn't this the goal? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and it just never is in the world that I'm in. So a little ministry question I wanted to start you with. And look, we got some book promotion in there. That's a good job. I know. That worked out really well. We didn't know we were going to go that way. So thanks, we Brian. We did not. We did not. Coming up next, co-authors Jay Moon and Bud Simon. They've got a new book called Effective Intercultural Evangelism, Good News and a Diverse World. Jay and Bud are going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by the co-authors of a book that literally came out today called Effective Intercultural Evangelism, Good News and a Diverse World. Such an important book for uh, the times that we are living in. Those authors are Dr. Jay Moon and Bud Simon. Jay and Bud, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us today. Hey, doing great. Glad to be here. Doing well. Great. Glad to have you guys with us. And uh, let's start this way. Before we jump into the book, and again, congrats on, on, on the book releasing today. But before we do that, we'd love to have you guys introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you just a little bit uh, better. So, Jay, why don't we start with you? Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, thanks, Brian. I'm a professor of church planting and evangelism at Asbury Theological Seminary. This is my ninth year. Uh, formerly, we were missionaries with SIM in Ghana, West Africa, among a least-reached people group for 13 years, and have also uh, done some business type of things that engage like people in the marketplace in order to stay fresh with current evangelism among unchurched and de-churched folks. Wow, that's outstanding. And Bud, how about you? Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Yeah, I am uh, working on my dissertation at Asbury. Jay is my academic mentor. Nice. And uh, we spent, I spent 20 years in Brazil church planting uh, in the Amazon. And wow. so I was there with the uh, vineyard. We did a lot of church planting. Lord blessed still a lot. I uh, saw a lot of churches planted and a lot of people come to the Lord. Mm. Yeah. And so then I uh, came back to the States to work on my PhD and Lord willing, um, Another year or so, we'll be done with that. Great. So congrats. Oh, I love this. I love the relationship you have with each other. And I love that you have uh, put this book out into the world, Effective Intercultural Evangelism, Good News in a Diverse World. Jay, let me throw the first question your way. This is kind of a broad one, but what in the world is intercultural evangelism? Yeah, very good. Well, what's happening is we're living in a pluralist society and we realize that there, the previous approaches to evangelism, like the four spiritual laws, the Roman road, even like evangelism explosion, it worked for a certain time among a certain type of people. 
But in a pluralist society, when you're dealing with Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus or those who are indifferent or secularists, those like formulaic approaches don't work. Mm. So how do we understand the worldview upon which people are already residing and then find which aspects of the good news relate to that worldview in order to initiate people into discipleship by starting at those culturally relevant starting points? And that's what the book really tries to help people to gain some confidence and some competence to move away from like formulaic approaches, but understand the worldview of people in order to adequately respond to them with good news. That's great. That's great. And, uh, but as I we were telling you off air, Aubrey and I are both pastors and something you'll hear uh, in kind of this generation, because uh, I grew up, like you said, with a lot of the formulaic evangelism and stuff. But 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 let me go a little more foundational and ask this question. There's some people out there who don't believe there's a place for evangelism right now that right now, you know, that's just pushing your worldview, pushing your religion. Uh, obviously, you guys wrote a book on evangelism, so you don't see it that way. Could you answer that question for people who don't think evangelism is proper in this time? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that's part of the reason we wrote this book mm. is so often um, evangelism has become this adversarial relationship, mm. kind of us against them. And this book really looks at it from a different perspective. We're saying God is at work in people's lives. How can we join that conversation that God has started in people's lives? Mm. And so instead of being against people, we are actually joining with God and what's going on. So it's a lot more of um, finding out what's happening in people's lives, um, getting to know them, and not necessarily being preoccupied with delivering a certain content, um, but really finding out. And that's where the worldview, this, uh, these different perspectives, the, the diversity of, of perspectives in the world really comes into play. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that's so important because I do think we forget that evangelism is not like closing a deal, right? But it is <laughs> yeah, yeah. actually this ongoing spiritual conversation with people. So I love that you guys are writing about this. Jay, let me ask you another question. Maybe just share with our listeners a story from the book, like maybe either an evangelism story that went well or one that went wrong, like something to encourage our listeners. Yeah, well, that's really what's driving us because this book is written for practitioners, Mm. particularly for those who have maybe tried these formulaic approaches and realized it didn't work. And therefore, they think evangelism is a bad thing, or maybe it's just relegated to some super professionals that are really good at it. And what we're saying is that it's not that at all. We're really catching up on the conversation God has had with people and keeping that conversation moving Christward. I first realized this when I was a new missionary in Ghana, West Africa, with the Bolsa people, you know, we learned the language and um, started to share our faith with the people. And I used the approach that I had learned in seminary, basically a version of like the four spiritual laws. <clears throat> and at the end of it, the people said, well, you know, that's interesting, kind of. <laughs> so, so what has happened here? How did the good news become like interesting information? until I started to realize they have a very different starting point. Mm. They don't feel guilt for their sin. Right. But when I started with the point that, you know, God has created humans, but they've, um, because of their sin, there's this curse that's put upon humanity. Mm. And therefore God promised that he would send someone who to remove the curse so that you would no longer fear witchcraft or juju or Mm. evil eye, et cetera. And all of a sudden, they're like, well, tell me more. And long story short, in nine years, not because of us, often in spite of us, 
we're in the midst of this church planning movement of 25 churches. Wow. Amen. And, and the point really is, if we had stayed with that initial starting point of guilt, that would have fallen on deaf ears, and we could have assumed that they were not receptive. Instead of finding out the worldview where they are inhabiting, and where has God already started that conversation with this fear, yeah. and how the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that's a message that resonates, and it's scriptural, but it's also culturally relevant to them. Oh, that's good. And but how about you? You were a missionary as well. I believe you said in Brazil. What was uh, kind of your learning experience about sharing the gospel in a place uh, like Brazil? <laughs> well, you know, um, very it was it's ironic, very similar to what Jay experienced. Um, I would just get up and preach like these beautiful uh, three point <laughs> sermons and they were just right on, you know, and everyone would just politely nod at the end. And um, one day when I just realized, hey, um, I'm not connecting, but I shared a story about shame and uh, reconciliation and having your shame covered. Now, I'm skipping over. I go, there's more in depth in the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But sure. basically, when I got done sharing that story, everyone stood up and applauded. And it was like it resonated the, the idea of uh, shame and honor in their culture. That, that idea resonated so deeply that that just like God has come to cover our shame and restore us to a place of honor in his family, just went down so deep into the soul that, uh, that I, I was, I, it just woke me up. It was like, man, I, I've just been missing something here. Mm -hmm. And uh, realizing that, that the scripture really addresses um, different perspectives, different worldviews, and the gospel. Christ never shared the gospel the same way twice. Mm -hmm. um, and so really just thinking, we're trying to connect with people. We're trying to connect the gospel with people. And so to think that there's only one approach that's appropriate for every single person, Christ doesn't demonstrate that, you know? Absolutely. Well, Dr. Jay Moon and Bud Simon, they're the co-authors of a new book, Hot Off the Presses, came out today called Effective Intercultural Evangelism, Good News in a Diverse World. And there's a special offer. You get a discount. Here's how you do it. Go to ivpress.com and use the code EVANG21, E-V-A-N-G-21 at ivpress.com, and you will get 30% off this great new book. Jay, we were just talking off air. You said something really important because I grew up in the church and I always saw evangelism as like scary and like my responsibility <laughs> and kind of homework. And, and you said, man, I wish uh, that it had been more taught as fun and something as an opportunity. Can you expound on that and then even talk about some of the tools you guys have made to make it more fun? Yeah. So uh, I've taught evangelism for the last eight years. And when you tell people that you're going to talk about evangelism, they don't always have warm fuzzies. You know, right. <laughs> so we've tried to gamify it in order to make it more enjoyable, but also learning. So this very topic of effective intercultural evangelism, we've incorporated into a card game that helps people think through the four different worldviews. And then they uh, share a story related to a different uh, card that, that they draw that has a person, place, and a problem. And what it does in the end, it helps you think through every time you play the game, you share your faith a little bit differently. Mm. And it prepares you to do that when you're in real life as well. So some people liken it to before you go out and try to swing the bat to hit a home run, first you have to have some batting practice. Mm. So this is some batting practice to help people 
when they're really real life with like their family or friends or wherever. Oh, that's so fun. And can you give our listeners maybe an example if they if they want to even begin like that batting practice, they want to start <laughs> maybe for the first time talking about Jesus with their intercultural neighbor. But do you have any words of wisdom for them? Oh, well, I would just say this. I would say, um, you know, a generation ago, pretty much most people around us had a very similar um, world worldview. They just mm-hmm. perceive things the same way. That simply is not true anymore. Everyone has such different perspectives. And so it involves a lot more listening. We actually call this a double listening. You're listening to their story, but you're also listening to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And when the Holy Spirit gives you little little prompts about, hey, this is this is what I'm actually, how I'm trying to use that situation in that person's life to help them come closer to me. And so it's a lot about realizing I'm not there to close a deal, mm. but I am there to help this person move just one step closer to Christ. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And, and Jay, I, I want to think about people who are listening right now. You know, they go to work every day or they're in their neighborhoods and they're, they are terrified of evangelism, right? Like they do see it as kind of a, a close the deal as a sales pitch. What would be one first step for that person who, who's like, I, I'd like to talk to my neighbor. I'd like to talk to my coworker, but I don't know how to start. Could you give a word of advice to that person? Yeah, um, I would say, you know, first read our book and identify. (laughs) (laughs) That was very well done. Very well done. (laughs) Well, what the book helps you do is recognize these four very common worldviews. So you don't have to challenge Islam or Buddhism. Mm. Rather, understand the worldview upon which these systems are built and therefore allow the gospel to penetrate into those worldviews. Mm -hmm. And they're very recognizable. So in the card game, you learn how to recognize those. But in reading the book, you recognize these four different worldviews. And once you recognize that, as you're listening, like Bud said, start to look for clues which one of these worldviews those people are exhibiting. That's great. And then that becomes the place to start. Mm -hmm. And what we found was we first started with these three very common ones, like the fear, power, honor, shame, Mm -hmm. justice, guilt. We realized there's another one emerging called indifference, and that Christ offers belonging with purpose. Mm -hmm. And that is particularly uh, more prominent, like on college campuses, particularly as a result of secularism. So it's another worldview, and there's another way to respond to it, but you learn that by listening and then seeing which category is a good starting point. Mm. This is such helpful information, especially in an increasingly diversifying world, if that's a word. Um, But (laughs) for our listeners, let's say they're in a conversation with a neighbor. I live in a primarily Hispanic community, um, but they're realizing, oh, there are some cultural differences I'm I'm noticing as I'm having this conversation. What are some good questions neighbors can ask of one another to even begin recognizing, oh, this person may have a different worldview than I have? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I, I would say this, especially like you mentioned, Hispanic people with Hispanic background, one out of eight people in the United States are immigrants, which means they've been born in a different country. One out of three people in the United States have an immigrant in their home. That means one of their parents is is probably from a different country. So you're meeting these people all the time. And what happens is people, when we when we run into these people, they are generally much more interested in people's personal life. 
So in our in, in American culture, oftentimes personal life is off limits. But when you start saying, um, hey, tell me, tell me about your life and and in a very, you know, very kind and appropriate way, um, not invasive, but you're showing a deeper interest in who they are. Um, and a lot of identity is tied up in, in family and extended family um, in community. What community are they from? And so just really being interested um, and thinking in relational terms, thinking more like, how can this person become my friends? What kind of questions do I want to would I want to ask someone who I want to be my friend? You know, mm-hmm. um, those things really resonate deeply. And, and in that, like I said, a real key is then. Um, you kind of do this double listening and, and the Holy Spirit will prompt and direct you and say, hey, maybe maybe press in here at this point just a little bit more, you know. And yeah, so I just suggest that. That's good. And Jay, as we start to close up here, uh, you know, talking about evangelism, church planting uh, kind of in around the world. Could you just paint a picture for the listeners out there as to what God is doing around the world? Is Do you see the Holy Spirit at move uh, in, in countries where there really are no churches in, in our country as well? What do you see going on out there? Well, Brian, this is a, a great question because it's a delight to answer. Because mm-hmm. what, really what's happening is this period of time, for some reason, God's allowed us to participate in this period of time. It's unprecedented since the beginning of the church. There is significant growth, unprecedented growth that we've never seen before, including among Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists that have never happened before. There are movements of people coming to Christ. Um, There are large populations. So, for example, say South Korea, a small peninsula, if you take all the Presbyterians in the United States and multiply by two, South Korea has more. Mm. Wow. Which is crazy, Amazing. right? This wow. small peninsula. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa has gone from about 24% Christian to about 48% in the last wow. 50 years. Wow. So this is just happening worldwide. And, and really, this is resonating with our book where we're saying God is doing something. Yeah. We need to listen to it, That's catch right. up on that conversation and keep it moving towards Christ. Now, even when people don't admit it, they may say, you know, I'm secularist, I'm an agnostic, maybe I'm atheist. We still think that God has that conversation going. If you listen long enough, you'll find it. And what's happening is in this time of history, there's this unprecedented move of people towards Christ. Let's listen well in Mm. order to catch up with it. Ah, That's a great word. Again, Dr. Jay Moon and Bud Simon are co-authors of a new book called Effective Intercultural Evangelism, Good News in a Diverse World. And again, there's a special offer. So what we want you to do is go to ivpress.com. That's ivpress.com. Use the code EVANGE21. That's E-V-A-N-G-21. And you will get 30% off of their new book, Effective Intercultural Evangelism. Jay and Bud, this has been a great Great time. Excited for your book. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you all. It's been great. Uh, It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Hope you're having a great day. I've listened to some of the show with Catherine yesterday, but I did see you teasing that she was going to announce the new name of her book. Did yeah, we got what an exclusive. It? She dropped the title on us. It is called Fearing Bravely, 
And uh, it is a book about loving neighbors, strangers, and enemies. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's outstanding. So thank you for Catherine for filling in. Glad that she was with us. All right. You and I, uh, one of the uh, blessings and curses of this show is that we get to wrestle on a daily basis with the global news, larger news, but also uh, with the news of the church and yep, what's going do. on in Christianity. Sometimes <laughs> that feels really fun to have an outlet to be able to talk. And sometimes if we're being honest, uh, it's overwhelming and it could become make you, you have to really fight not to get jaded and cynical. <laughs> and, yeah, you definitely do. Uh, you know, and you know, whether it be listening on a weekly basis to the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, or it be the very first episode Ian and I did of this show, uh, the, the stories of Harvest Bible Chapel had just dropped or Ravi Zacharias International Ministry. The list, unfortunately, yeah. uh, is long. Yeah. A- and it can be difficult to wrestle with those. But Aubrey, as we um, as you do wrestle with those, one of the lingering questions and Russell Moore writes about this at Christianity Today this week. Uh, one of the lingering questions is always this, especially as I listen to the like uh, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. One of the lingering questions is how in the world did mm. people not see what was going on mm. uh, with people that toxic, whether it be yeah. uh, at Mars Hill, whether it be Ravi Zacharias, whether it be whoever else it might be. The question that always rings, I think, in everybody's minds is, wasn't this obvious? Mm. Wasn't this clear? Mm. Why did you not all just get out? Mm. Uh, do you wrestle with that? Like, like Russell Moore is going to write an article about how we escape toxic leaders, but I struggle with that when I read these stories. No, I actually don't struggle with it. And it might be my experience as a woman, but I feel like a lot of um, people in those types of organizations with toxic leaders know how toxic it is, or at least mm. have a sense like, ooh, this is bad. Ooh, this doesn't feel good. But I think because of the power dynamics, the structures at play, they can't do anything about it. So maybe mm. they go to their HR people, their HR people don't do anything about it. And then I think another layer, Brian, and this is true of anyone in abuse, and I'm sure in your church, you've walked with women who have been abused, wives who have been abused. Kevin and I walked with a lot of abused women because they have been so beat down and so battered for so long, it becomes so difficult to even recognize what's happening. And then it takes a whole nother layer of courage to stand up against it. And so it actually doesn't surprise me that this happens. I hate it. I think it is evil and awful. And I do think times are finally changing, Mm. but I'm more, um, I think I think what's starting to bother me more is the people who should do something. So not necessarily the victims, but like HR departments or elders. That part I'm I'm starting to question like why were they so bent on protecting this toxic leader and not the victim? That's the question that I'm asking. Not why were we blind, but why was this allowed to happen? Mm. Yeah, Russell Moore again at Christianity Today, he he talks about a phrase out of psychology uh, that I'd never heard. Uh, it's a concept that belongs to psychologist Jennifer Freyd, F-R-E-Y-D, and it's called betrayal blindness. So let me read kind of the definition of betrayal okay. blindness. And I think this gets at a lot of, of what you were just talking about. Uh, more quoting Jennifer Freyd says, uh, betrayal blindness refers to the need for a person to trust a spouse, a parent, a caregiver, or a leader. And when betrayed by them, 
to fluctuate between the need to end the abuse and the need to preserve the relationship. Yeah, that's it. That's and, it. and I read that. I, I love that added into that because we're just talking about pastors and, and that yeah. can be a different, but you, we've all looked at marriages where we're going, mm -hmm. why in the world mm -hmm. is that spouse staying with that spouse? Like mm -hmm. what's going on or why would you stay in that relationship? And I think this is a powerful concept, this idea of betrayal blindness. And I'm so linked to this person or I'm so committed or, uh, you know, they, they use the, they use the example of the Ravi Zacharias ministries and the people who stayed on for so long. Yeah. They're, this fluctuation between I've got to do something and uh, I I need to preserve this relationship. I believe in this person or whatever yeah. else. Yeah. I feel like, does that make sense to you? That that adds a layer to this for me. Yeah, as I, kind of I think read that, about that adds a huge layer. And, and things like this person holds the future of my career in their hands, mm, or this person yeah. is the father of my children or the mother of my children. Like there are so many layers at play when it comes to these toxic power dynamics that it it really isn't. I mean, you know, we've walked with women. It, they have been like blatantly, blatantly, blatantly abused. Like mm. sometimes I think women can justify like, oh, he just called me a bad name. He didn't hit me. But like we've walked with women who've like they've been hit, they've been mm. cheated on, they've been et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's still, it takes years and years for them to deprogramming all of the programming that this predator abusive person has done in order to even see like it is safe and actually good for me to walk away. I mean, it's, it's a yeah. lot more complicated than people realize. And I think that's an important point you just made there, that it's a lot more complicated uh, because again, from the outside now, uh, Russell Moore is going to make the point that it takes a village to escape a toxic leader, that it's, if just left to ourselves, we never do yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, as we close out this, talk to me about, uh, cause it sounds like you've walked with a lot more people than I have. And, um, talk to me about the role that community plays, whether yeah. it's in an abusive marriage, yeah. but also these like church, he's he, more here is talking specifically about churches and parachurches. Yeah. Uh, the Ravi Zacharias, the Mark yeah. Driscoll's, whatever else, the role of community. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that makes all the difference in the world. Let's say there's an organization where one person is sort of the, the butt of a lot of this toxic person's behavior and that person talks about it to like a safe coworker, for example, if that coworker says, wait, this is not okay. And then uh, that coworker maybe goes to someone who has a little more power. And then that person's little more power says this needs to end. Like mm. that momentum begins to build so that change can actually happen. And often what you find is if you're experiencing toxicity or abuse from a leader, so are your coworkers, maybe in a different degree than you are because oftentimes abusers will pick one person to be like the golden child and they'll pick someone else to be the one they're really going to go after and destroy. They'll pick someone else to be, you know, like abusers have different roles for different people and then they try to like divide them from one another. Mm -hmm. And so there is power in community. And also, I mean, this is just a, uh, you know, this is just an example of a lot of things in life. When things are brought to the light, when evil is brought to the light, it cannot continue to exist. So the more sure. people that know, soon the balls will begin to roll and things will change. Even if it seems like you don't have the support you need, like things will change eventually.
That's a good word. Well, uh, I thought Russell Moore's point here was really good about it, taking a village to get out of toxic relationships, to yeah. even be able to see that you're in a toxic yeah, relationship. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because we see this all over the place and we want to ask the question, what could actually be done about it? So that's a good word. Yeah, you can find that at Christianity Today. Well, coming up next, uh, why does church membership matter, especially in this age of are people going to go back to church or not? We're going to have that conversation next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, what is church membership and does it even matter? And then we're asking the question, how do we deal with sudden loss? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, who is back from jury duty. We're so glad to have you with us. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad not to be on a jury. So there we go. There you go. And you did your civic duty. So well done, sir. Thank you very much. Um, all right, Brian, you're a pastor. I'm a pastor. We both we planted are. churches. We've both been around churches for a really long time. What is your church's take or stance, if you even have one, on church membership? Yeah, we do membership. So that is at the forefront of it. So people become members, and we always talk about it as like, it's it's not necessarily imagery that carries really well, but the way I've spoken from it in the on the front is, um, you know, it's kind of going from dating to marriage. You're going like we're in this with mm. you, and we're we're committed to you as well. It's kind of this reciprocal relationship. Now, I do think it, the struggle with it that I've had with people who are like, why do I need to become a member? Mm-hmm. Is the formality of it what is actually the difference? I'm not sure I've done a good job at our church of trying of. Um, helping people understand or even setting up systems to where there is a difference. Well, this yeah. is a member of the church get, you know, can do this and has this responsibility. And so I do think uh, it doesn't hold a ton of weight at our church other than voting on certain things or, or other things. But I think uh, it does matter because of what I said before, because of the mutual commitment to one another. Mm. It's saying, I'm committed to you, you're committed to us, even when things go bad, even when maybe you're not thrilled with a decision we make, even when you haven't been around for a while, there's still this commitment. But uh, I do think that church membership uh, as a concept is probably losing um, a lot of its weight these days in this generation, I would think. How about you guys? What does Renewal Church do? Yeah, you know, it's a question we've actually been asking since we started. Like, how do we have church members? Or I know some churches call them church partners because they don't want to use the membership language or what have you. And um, we have kind of been loosey-goosey about it, I'll be honest. Just before COVID, we decided, hey, maybe it's actually clarifying for our people to say, this is what it does look like to be a member of Renewal Church. This is what it means. And so we began to start sort of a membership process, a class and like expectations. But like you said, a mutual covenant. Here's what we're expecting from members, but here's what you can expect from us as well as a church. And because we really believe in the the holy communion of the saints, like 
membership is that we're taking this seriously, that you're not going to be, it doesn't mean you're attending every Sunday and you're doing everything perfect, but it means you're generally in. And if you leave for some reason, like we're going to go through a process of helping you leave well, you're not going to be a church shopper anymore. But COVID hit and honestly, (laughs) it all got put on the back burner. And so we're just honestly right now beginning to have that conversation. And you know, mm-hmm. I think a few years ago, I probably would have said, I, I don't know if I believe in church membership. That's for country club goers. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like that's kind of the big, um, the big, uh, criticism is that right. churches aren't country clubs. Why do we have to have members? But I, I actually do think there's some really important accountability in membership. I think if you're a member, then, um, if there's, you know, church discipline that needs to take place that can take place. If there's, um, if you, there's care that needs to happen, that can happen because members are, everyone knows what's going on with members. Like, I think that that mutual marriage, like you talked about, is a really important aspect of church membership. But I do wonder if a younger generation places less emphasis on the need to be a member or if we'll find that that's changing. I, I think there's something uh, culturally where it's, well, what's in it for me, right? Yeah, like what's yeah. what's really in it for me? And I think where I struggle with church membership is there, there, there's not much tangible like, hey, if you're a member, you get this. You or, get like a card, right? <laughs> a or, t-shirt. <laughs> or if you're a member and you don't show up to church three weeks in a row, we're go- well, we don't do that either. Right, so no. one of the conversations I've had with people – uh, is not only about like, well, I don't agree with the concept. It's just kind of like, what's the point? You know, like yeah. kind of what's the yeah. point? And and I believe deeply in church membership conceptually. Uh, I think in the in practice is where I've struggled because it is like, okay, you get to vote these couple times, you get to do this. Uh, but I think as a concept, it is super important for people to kind of uh, plant their flag and say, this is my church. Yeah. Uh, I, this is it, where I go. Whether, uh-huh. whether, th- whether this church is perfect or not, because mm-hmm. we all know that no church is perfect. Uh, I, this is where I'm going to be in community with people. These yeah. are my people. This is yeah. my family. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's just hard. People are more looking like uh, when you tell them, Hey, w- we'd love you to go through this membership class. You get kind of those sideways looks of people going, why? What's the point? And you're like, okay, (laughs) I get it. So, Right. I understand where you're coming from. Christianity Today actually just published uh, an article talking about how one in 10 non-church members still show up every Sunday. So I thought that was really interesting. One in 10 non-members go to church every week or more. And Mm -hmm. so you'd sort of expect that to be from the members but it's the non-members who are going to church almost as much as the members. So I do think that begins to pose that question again. Okay, then what's the point? Yeah. What's the difference? And I, I guess I wonder if we could change membership to covenant or to, I, I don't know, there's got to be some way to think about it a little bit differently where people can um, ceremonially, for lack of a better word, say, I am committed to this body of people, like you said. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know some churches, <clears throat> excuse me, who have, they, they do exactly that. They call them covenant members and they've written yeah. these huge covenants. But again, the question becomes, what are you going to do with that? Again, there has to be this mutual, like, nope, we're doing this not because of what I get out of it or I'm going to get punished for not doing it or whatever else, 
but that I see the value in it. Now, I, I do have to be honest that at our church, at least, uh, it's the members by and large who've come back post COVID more strongly. That's yeah, very interesting. I do think the people who go through the membership class or whatever mechanism you have for membership, they are more likely to be invested mm-hmm. because they've taken that step. That's not to say that non-members haven't come back. They most certainly have. But I would say uh, as churches struggle with who's coming back, who's not, what's it look like, I, we have certainly – maybe you have or haven't. I don't know. We have certainly seen a greater percentage of our members come back than the people who were more casually attending uh, pre-COVID. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. I don't know. I think we've seen both. We've seen our like core team people in, and then we've seen some of the like you know stragglers like are around again and and have been consistent. So I yeah. I don't know. Kevin and I were talking with our friend who's a pastor in the area, and he was like saying. I don't know where my people are. Like, Mm -hmm. I love them. Why aren't they back yet? And I think a lot of pastors are asking that question right now. And I do wonder if membership would be a way to kind of get people recommitted to what it means to be part of a church. And I know church, we've talked about this before. Church is not a building. Church, it doesn't mean Sunday morning service. But by and large, that is the space where our church body meets and worships and practices the sacraments and loves on each other and hears news about each other. And so that is sort of the primary symbol that we use for gathering right now is Sunday morning. So that's important. And so that's why I think pastors are calling people, trying to think through, like, how do we call people back to church? Is church membership part of it? Yeah. And and I think for pastors and churches, you have to think about what actually so it's one thing for us to point fingers at people and be like, oh, they're just not committed. They're not willing to take this step. But really put yourself in their shoes and go, well, what are you asking of me as a member? Maybe the answer is that we as churches need to rise, raise the bar on what we're asking of members and in particular. And that might draw people in and go, no, I want to be a part of a place where they're asking something of me. Mm, uh, yeah. And so I think that it's, it's a lot to wrestle with, especially right now, as we're all trying to figure out what is totally. church after COVID, where are people? Super important topic right now. Yeah, a very important question. We'll stick around when we return. We're going to talk about simple ways to become more compassionate people. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. Brian, I thought it might be interesting to have a discussion about compassion. There's a lot of hard, hard things going on in the world right now. And I think it's, uh, you know, more important than ever than Christians are people of compassion. And I wondered when you think about compassion, what comes to mind and who comes to mind? So like, what is compassion? And then who is someone in your life who exemplifies compassion? Oh, that's that's those are good questions. I think compassion uh, at just kind of a base level is actually caring for other people and then doing something about it. Right. Mm, It's easy to say, oh, I care for that person. uh, But then never, you know, if you don't do anything, whether it be pray or reach out or help them tangibly, uh, then that compassion is kind of without any legs. And, you know, when I think about people that I know who are compassionate, uh, it, it quite frankly is people like even in my church who very behind the scenes, you hear stories of, oh, wow, they went and visited that person. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. Or, oh, they're making phone calls all day. And it's 
it's not a church program. It's not a church like initiative. I didn't, as the pastor, call them and be like, I would like you to be our compassion coordinator right. and reach out <laughs> right. to all these people. But they're just and in their souls, they're just compassionate people. And so, you know, I think of compassionate organizations like, you know, you and I. Uh, we, we love dealing with food for the poor and other people, but man, when you, mm-hmm. when you really talk about compassion, it's those people in my mind who do it, uh, on their own without fanfare because they're just wired compassionately. They're just compassionate yeah. people. So, uh, who comes to mind for you or any, uh, any organizations or individuals? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think of Compassion International. No, just kidding. I mean, really, they actually are. They actually are an amazing organization. (laughs) Um, I I agree with you. It's, you know, it's sort of you, you find out that someone in your church has been delivering groceries to someone sick in your church for months, but never told anybody about it. Like you hear those stories and you're just blown away by like, okay, that is compassion. Like empathy with action, I think is compassion. And sometimes we can get overwhelmed, I think, by other people's pain that it almost stops us from stepping in and doing anything. But, um, you know, I, I did just hear this, this that exact story. Someone in our church was bringing regular mm-hmm. meals or regular grocery deliveries from Costco to another family in our church who's struggling with illness. And I was just blown away by that because it's not like, Kevin or I told that person to do that. You know, that was just like, that's the heart of God that they have. And that, that makes me think of compassion. I also, I know compassion does, um, is connected to action. I also think compassionate people are people that you could go to and they show you empathy, right? Like they're Mm -hmm. willing to listen and sit with you. And even if they might disagree with you, I think they can, um, they can carry your burdens well. Uh, that's what makes me think of of uh, compassionate people anyway. Yeah. Oh, I, I, oh go ahead. Uh, I think you're about to get to this, but I, when I'm around compassionate people, this probably isn't what you expect me to say. When I'm around really compassionate people, it also highlights my lack of compassion. <laughs> Just, <laughs> you're like, there, oh, they're the real Christians. <laughs> there's things about being compassionate. Like we can all be compassionate. Or I shouldn't speak for everybody. I can be compassionate uh, for moments. I don't know that I've got this deep down compassion. I don't know that my heart breaks for people. And I, I guess I, hopefully I'm allowed to say this as a pastor. When I'm around people who are very naturally compassionate, uh, there are aspects of it that make me feel somewhat guilty because I go, mm. I just not like that. And I want to be like that, but I'm, mm. I'm not like them naturally. That is a really good question and a really good segue to this article that I wanted to bring up. This is over at A Better Samaritan, uh, a blog forum at Christianity Today that Brian and I actually write for as well. We contribute to The Better Samaritan. But they posted an article by John Frame called A Simple Way to Become a More Compassionate Person. So I think if you are feeling that way, wow, I'm not compassionate. They have some questions you can ask yourself <laughs> in order to become more compassionate. And what they're talking about is in light of the natural disasters in Haiti, the fall of Afghanistan, how do Christians need to respond? And um, ultimately, they talk about, John talks about what you talked about, Brian, is that compassion is connected to what we do. To love people, we need to care about them. And even if we don't know how to help, how to relate to them, we can have it in our hearts to care about them. And so I think that is, that's helpful. Like what they talk about in this article is there are small ways to demonstrate compassion, demonstrate Mm -hmm. that you value people. 
um, by just taking little small steps. And some of the questions that this article asks us to reflect on, and I thought you and I could kind of go back and forth reflecting on these. Um, one is how do the ways we act toward people reflect our attitude toward God? Mm. Uh, <laughs> the Bible so often talks about uh, our love for others, our love for neighbor, our serving of other people being a reflection of our understanding of what God has done for us. So therefore, um, you know, think of Philippians chapter two, right? You take the mindset of Christ Jesus uh, mm. towards other people. Uh, so therefore, you could make the argument that if you lack compassion, it is a it is a uh, sign that you lack understanding of the compassion God has shown you in Jesus Christ. That you yeah you don't understand the depth of the gospel because mm -hmm. the Bible seems to say in various places that as I grasp the depth of the gospel, one of the outflows in my life is going to be serving others the way that Jesus has served me. Uh, and so I think you can make that argument biblically, that if I'm not a compassionate person, I'm not grasping the compassion that God has shown me, which becomes super convicting. <laughs> because Absolutely, it becomes convicting. And I, I also think that, you know, Matthew talks about how doing these things for others, you're actually doing them to Jesus. Yes. And so I think that doesn't convict you and it convicts me. I don't know what else will like it yes. is in God's eyes. Having compassion towards your brother or sister, or your stranger, your enemy in need is the same as treating Jesus that way or a different way. And so, I, I mean, I don't know. That's really it, it, it matters that we think about our compassion. OK, here's the next question, Brian. And, and you were kind of open about this. But we can both talk about it. Yeah. In what ways might you struggle with being compassionate? Yeah, I think at my heart, I think compassion is is a struggle for me because it takes so much time mm, and energy. That's real. Yeah. And, and so I just feel I don't think I, I don't want people to think that if, if I saw a need in front of me, I'd be like, I do not feel the need to meet. I'm married to a very compassionate person who's looking for people and opportunities mm. to help people. I like helping people. I like how that makes me feel. But being compassionate, I think, takes time and energy. And oftentimes I don't feel like I have that. I, you know, my kids' yeah. schedules, my schedule, uh, fitting in family time, all this stuff, it feels very easy to go. All I've got space and bandwidth yeah. for right now is myself and my family. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I do think to be a compassionate person requires intentionality and time. And that's the rub for me. I'm not often willing to give up that time. Yeah. That might be required. Even when I hear people at church be like, we should do this. I would love to help out. I'm always like, I would love to do that, but I don't have the, I don't have that in me at the moment. Yeah. So Kevin I, will often say, great. If God is calling you to do that, you go for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think about the ways we used to show compassion in our neighborhood or in our, in our community as a church. And sometimes I feel like I just don't have the time for it. And I think that's mm. a huge red flag. If you don't feel like you have the time right. or the energy for compassion, then it requires you, and I say this for myself very clearly, it requires you to look at your schedule and go, well, why don't I have that? Why don't I have this base level of time and energy for what God has called us to be and to do? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And the last one, and as we'll close, I'll just sort of answer this. The question is, in what ways do you find the beast of resistance in your own heart? That's mm -hmm. similar to what you were just talking about. That beast of resistance might be time 
for you. I think the beast of resistance for me, I'll just be really, really honest, is sometimes if I don't think the person deserves the compassion, and I don't mean they haven't earned it. I mean, like if they're just jerks, right? That's when I'm like, (laughs) I don't want to be compassionate towards them. I know this about them X, Y, Z. But then you think of the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan and you think, no, the example is that that person had compassion on their enemy. The example that Jesus has shown us compassion when we were still his enemies, like there's not really, that's not a leg to stand on, obviously. So we hope this encourages you today that you can just say to God, God, would you fill my heart with compassion? Would you lead my hands to be your hands on the earth? That's a prayer that this article ends with. That's over at A Better Samaritan at Christianity Today. Let's be people of compassion in this hurting world. Well, when we return, we're going to talk about compassion in actually a really different way. How do we process the sudden loss of a dearly loved one? You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And Brian, these are the stories we don't love to share, but we know it's deeply important to honor those who have uh, passed suddenly. And news broke yesterday about an Anglican pastor named Thomas McKenzie from Nashville. He and his daughter were driving to take her to college and they both were killed tragically in a car mm-hmm. accident. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people around here uh, were connected with him. Twitter is kind of going crazy with this loss. He was 50 years old. His daughter was about to start college. I believe she was 22 years old. So maybe she was returning to a college. Senior. She was a senior. Okay, yeah. sorry. She was a senior. Uh, her name was Charlie. And no, sorry. Her name was Ella. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure I say people's names right. Uh, her name was Ella. His name was Thomas. And I know that uh, lots of people are devastated about this news. He was a faithful church leader and friends with Ed Stetzer at Billy Graham Center who called him a friend, someone having a sharp mind and a kind heart. I was actually with someone yesterday who had just received the news. She's in uh, connected to his diocese and she was just devastated. She was just sobbing. And so I, you know, we want to take some time to honor him and honor his family and honor those who are impacted by that. I think a larger conversation worth having is what do we do when we experience sudden yeah. loss like this? And Brian, do you have any experience in, with sudden death? Yeah, nobody like this really comes to mind. I think that um, because what was amazing about this story, I had never heard of this guy. And that was one yeah. of the amazing things because you yeah. see the outpouring again. He's in the Nashville area. Uh, and then you also in the, tr- in the in the world that we live in of social media, you also saw like he tweeted like an hour before he died going mm. about to he- head out on a sabbatical first road trip with my daughter, blah, blah. And you're oh. like, oh, my gosh, there's like this uh. real time processing for people. Mm. But this guy was clearly kind of a salt of the earth. Um, everyone who came around him uh, seemed to be, I just kind of found myself reading stories by Tish Harrison Warren and by, mm. like you said, Ed Stetzer and Russell Moore and all these other people. Uh, just there's an article about him at Christianity Today, Religion News Now, but just this uh, taken from the, from, from kind of the prime of his life and ministry and his daughter. And he was about to go on sabbatical and had just written a letter to his church about Mm. what he was hoping to accomplish on sabbatical. It does remind you of the book of James and just 
life is a mist and you're not yeah, guaranteed right, 80 right, years, 90 right. years. We all think we are. And he had this great plan of sabbatical and, and then boom, in a, in a moment, mm-hmm. it was taken away. And it, it does remind you of, you know, and I think people will be like, man, this is just kind of melodramatic and sad. But I do think it's really important for us to be reminded of the temporary nature of this world we That's live in. We right. all think we're going to have, like I said, I'm 44 years old. And so you think, well, I'm probably halfway through my life right mm-hmm. now. Maybe let that's not guaranteed at all. And, right, and I think especially in a place like the United States where we've got all this comfort and all this stuff, we can lull ourselves into a false sense of security mm. that says, I don't know, I'm going to live for much longer. So therefore, I don't need to have this urgency. And yeah, I mean, this guy's tweeting and then an hour later, he's mm. in an accident outside yeah. of you know Nashville, Tennessee, where he lives and he's dead and his daughter's dead. And and you want to grieve that and especially Absolutely. so many people who were so clearly close to him. But Aubrey, I also think it's a it's a pastoral teaching moment reminder for all of us of going, I'm not guaranteed another day. And what yeah. would my life look like yeah. if I live that way that said, I'm not guaranteed another day. So therefore, what? Therefore, yeah. how does that make a difference? I think anytime you read a story like that, it just reminds you of the the biblical principle of the book of James that that life is a mist and and that we are made for eternity but we're given this life now to to steward and to live well. Yeah, it's certainly a reminder that the time we have on earth is precious, not that it's the only time we like you said we know we have those of us who are in Christ have eternity with God to look forward to. But certainly it's a I think a reminder for all of us a sobering reminder for all of us that um time with our people is really, really precious. Yeah. And it is so easy to get lost in the the hustle and the stress and the comparison game and and whatever it is we feel like is driving us, but to forget that like the little ones around us are like our mm-hmm. kiddos are mm-hmm. really, really important. Our loved ones really, really important. And, you know, I, I know we kind of it, it's almost cliche to do this, but some things are cliche for a reason. It it these types of stories are moments when you have to look at your life and say, am I living my one good life the way that I really want to? And if my time did end, have I, can I go before the Lord and say, yeah, I lived every moment like you would want me to God. I loved my people and my neighbors really, really well. I've loved you well. And we've talked about on the show, what it means to leave a legacy and, and mm-hmm. how to be intentional in the way we live. So when we go, we feel like we're leaving with a satisfied mind, a satisfied heart in a sense. Um, And I'm certain that uh, Thomas McKenzie loved people really well. It just seems like that's really going to be clear of his legacy. But I think you're right, Brian. Time is precious. Death is coming for all of us and not to be so, so dark. But um, are we living the way we want to? And are we ready for the moment that the Lord decides to take us? I, I know, like, it's kind of funny, like old pastors used to say that, right? Like, oh, are you going to be ready when you're tired? But <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. as I'm getting older, I feel that more and more. Like, yeah. am I ready to meet my Savior? Have Have I done the work before God that I need to do to get right with the Lord? But then also, have I loved my people really, really well? Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, this can be uh depressing to go while we go to go and again i'm not sure you can actually live each day like it might be your last that would be completely like running your engine really hot right but Mm -hmm. but more living with that sort of perspective but it's also hopeful like you could be like well this is really it's also hopeful yeah because 
uh, as I live my life, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? The words of Paul in Philippians. And so as I, I think this reminder that this life is fleeting and that there's eternity to come, I think what it does is it shifts our perspective. There and when you we go. Live, when we live with the right perspective that says, yeah, I'm not, I'm not guaranteed another day. It allows me to live with a freedom uh, but also a certainty that goes, no matter what happens in this world, for me to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, mm. to die is gain. As we think about this story of Thomas McKenzie, it is an enormous loss for his mm. family, first and foremost, but also for his church, for the wider church community. And so it is loss, and you want to understand that, but it's also gain. And yeah. and that's where it becomes important. It's also gain of it's going- also gain. Uh, you know what? It, it is a really sad story, but it's a sad story with a hopeful, good ending that says him and his daughter, as tragic as this yeah. is on this side of eternity, are now in the reality of no more tears and no yep. more pain. And they're with their savior. And, and that doesn't, that's not like a fleeting hope. We could go, nope, I could ground my hope in that. I can, yes. I can anchor it yes. in that. And so that's why that's important. It, it is both depressing to go, wow, this world, you're not guaranteed another mm -hmm. day, but it's also hopeful to go, I'm not, this is not my ultimate reality. There's more to this yeah. than what I can see. I think that also gives us a hopeful perspective. Absolutely. And, you know, and going back to those words of Paul, to, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I mean, this is a man who was martyred like, mm -hmm. for Jesus. And here he is saying to die is gain. And I think ultimately that's a word for all of us. Like this is awful. And we grieve loss because death is not okay. Death is the enemy. I mean, this is a story where death is the enemy, period. And I, we don't want to ever make light of that. I think to be uh, reminded of the fact that in Christ, like it's going to be okay. Yes. Um, we will experience the gain that comes from death. I think that's just a powerful reminder for all of us. So for those of you who are grieving the loss of Thomas McKenzie and his daughter, we want you to know we're standing with you praying for you today and remembering mm -hmm. him. Stick around. We're actually going to talk about some fun things as we return. Small acts of kindness and joy and laughter. And I have a great story for you, Brian. I can't wait to share that with you. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday evening. We're wrapping up the show. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian Fromm. And we like to end every show by giving you something encouraging to think yes. about. And Brian, I had a story that I wanted to share with you, a personal story about my really good friend. This is actually my best friend. This woman has been my best friend for 20 years. I don't know if she wants me to say her name, so I'm not going to. She's a pretty <laughs> private person. But my best friend has stage four metastatic breast cancer. Oh. And I almost can't even say that out. Ooh, can't say that out loud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. No, absolutely. Give me just a second. Um, but with the launch of my new book, Known, she spent last week, she spent three days last week creating this massive chalk art mosaic. That has the book title and the subtitle and hashtag known book. And she actually, um, she worked on it on her driveway for three days because she's a creative person. And so sometimes in working through her own, um, illness and just the reality of the time that she has left, she likes to process things creatively and she mm -hmm. likes to love other people really well. And so anyway, she called me one day and she's like, Hey, do you have five minutes to stop by? I need to show you something. 
And I was like, oh, yeah, actually I do. So I drove over there and her driveway, again, is covered with the most beautiful like mosaic art. If you go to my social media at Obsamp on Instagram or on Facebook, you'll see it. But I just like sat there and almost bawled like a baby because I was (laughs) blown away by the fact that this woman who is dealing with her own stuff um, in such tremendous ways would love me so well and do this really small but beautiful act of kindness. I actually dedicated known to her. And so that added some, you know, specialness to the story. But I, you know, it makes me think of small acts of kindness are just sometimes mind-blowing. Like you don't always think it's a big deal, but small surprises, small ways of loving other people, just, man, they make such a difference in this world. And, uh, oh, sorry, I'm still gathering myself from my friend's story. Um, But I was was watching Good Morning America, and I, I really want our listeners to hear this because Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, was driving in his neighborhood and he drove by one of those Hollywood tour buses that, yeah. you know, go see celebrity homes, which by the way, I would do that in a heartbeat. That is like, my, Oh, uh, so would I. It's like my, people magazine on wheels. Yes. A hundred percent. Like I would want to do that. Well, anyway, Dwayne Johnson pulls up next to the tour bus, rolls down the window is like, Hey, has anybody seen where the rock lives or something like that? And all <laughs> the people start screaming. I want to play that audio for you. Cause it's so amazing. All right. This is kind of funny. There's a, tour bus here it always tours through my neighborhood hey you guys know where i can find the rock <laughs> how you guys doing uh, i'll wait i'll wait don't worry <laughs> how you guys doing everybody good all right hey you're very welcome all right brother oh cool well, you guys have a good trip all right thank you love you too <laughs> Hey. Oh, well, that was fun. It's a good way to start off my Saturday. Bye. (laughs) All right. So my favorite part is like the people just start screaming when they see him. It's so funny. He really like brightened their day. Go ahead, Brian. I love that he got such joy out of it, too. Totally. uh, He just rolls down his window and he's like, did anyone seen The Rock? And they're like. (laughs) Uh, there is an interesting thing uh, culturally where at the moment they realized it was him, 100% of the people in the clip pulled their phones out. I know. Is that bizarre? Like was, you see the phones just go up, 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 and then people screaming. Like, it was crazy. wild. But he, he probably knows that what he did there was – I'm not – I don't even think I'm being overdramatic. In some ways, it's a life-changing experience for these people because they're like, I saw the rock, right? Oh, like, Totally. Uh, and, and Aubrey, I think about the story you told about your friend, which is just a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Or I think about this lighthearted one with the rock. And we talked, uh, framing it around our conversation earlier yeah. today about compassion. The reminder that uh, I shared earlier that I struggle with compassion simply because of the time it takes. Yeah. But that compassion doesn't always need to um, be this huge activity or this, I'm going to give all my money or I'm going to give all yeah. these weekly amounts. Of, sometimes it's just really small deals right. where you're like, you know, again, the rock driving up, but more so your friend going, I'm going to bless my friend who's yes. got this book coming yes. out by doing this on my driveway. Like yes. that's a, like that's a, a moment that you'll never forget, but it wasn't an expensive moment. No. It wasn't a weekly commitment. It wasn't any of this stuff. It was going, 
I'm going to bless my friend. And I yeah. think that's a great way to end today's show is to mm-hmm. go, you could be kind without it dominating your schedule or your budget or whatever else it might be. It's just being kind. And I think that's a really great reminder, both in a, in a, powerful way with your friend, but then also just in a silly way with the rock coming up yeah, alongside. Going, yeah. He could have probably got tinted windows. He could have kept his window Absolutely. up looking forward going, what's my next thing I got to get to. But he's like, you know what? I'm going to have some fun with these people. And it's gone kind of viral. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to surprise these people and make their day today. And I'm sure that, you know, you, you could be tempted to, like you said, keep the windows rolled up, maybe even roll your eyes. Like, what are these people doing looking for celebrities? But instead he's like, you know what? I want to make someone's day today. And I, I think that's a really good word that these acts of compassion don't always have to take everything from you, but they can be little things. Send someone a note. Send someone a text that you're thinking about them. Stop by their house. Um, set, you know, buy the Starbucks like we talked about. Pay it forward. Although, don't wait. Brian has mixed feelings about <laughs> <I> that. <laughs> it says more about me than them. Yes, it does. <laughs> but I, I think it's a call for all of us to maybe, and you know, not to be totally cheesy, but like be a little bit cheesy. Wake up every day and ask, who can I bless today with That's something good. small? Who can I yeah. send flowers to? Who can I send a note to? Who can I shout up a prayer for? Who can I love today in a small way that would bless them and let them know that God is thinking about them? Because I, mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing. I think sometimes people don't realize that when um, folks around the world are praying, God, where are you? That sometimes we are actually the answer to that prayer. And when mm-hmm. we show up for people in small ways, that is, that shows people that God sees them and God loves them and God cares for them. And so if someone comes to your mind, realize that that might be the Holy Spirit bringing that person to your mind. That's right. that's and right. that that's a call for you to somehow, again, like Brian said, it doesn't have to like take your whole week or take your whole life, but just do something small and loving. You know, something I like to do, Brian, and then we'll quick, we'll end the show. And maybe you have an example like this, but on your iPhone, you can send Starbucks gift cards really easily. There's like yes, a, there's an app where you send your text messages, shoot somebody $5 to go buy themselves a latte. Like that's so cool and so encouraging. So that's a great way to encourage people. What about yeah. you? Do you have one act of kindness in, as an example? It's This made me laugh the other day. It's a little bit off of what we're talking about. I went for a walk with my two younger children. Uh, my son is 13. My daughter's 12. We walked all the way. T- we could walk to downtown Downers to Starbucks. It's a little bit of a hike, but it's a fun walk. Uh, and I, 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 every it was Saturday morning. So everyone who passed us, I said good morning to. And my, I just love realized that. that my kids were just kind of like nodding and smiling when they would say something back. Yeah. And I was like, next people that come by, you have to say good morning. And it was like, <laughs> oh. And again, it's these simple acts yeah, of kindness. Yeah, that's right. In a world where people aren't seen, to just say good morning. And it became a funny thing where my kids mm. were like yelling good morning across the street. <laughs> that's awesome. In the afternoon, it became a competition between them. And even things like that, though. Yeah, uh, that's good. Is it life-changing to look somebody in the eye and say good morning? No, but it's going to put a smile on somebody's face. Yeah. And, and just to be like uh, those little acts of kindness. I mean, that's as minor as it can get. But to teach our kids little acts mm-hmm. of kindness – uh, and then those can grow into larger acts of kindness. I think the call here for us as individuals and as the church is just be kind. Like there be a go. nice person, be kind, be the hands and feet of Jesus in yeah. easy ways, and then allow that to grow into the bigger ways. Yeah, that's a good word for us this Tuesday evening. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Be sure to join us tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. for more Common Good. 
For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.